welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This morning I want to look at another hot potato that Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians, and it's sex. Now that I have your undivided attention. Actually, Hannah asked me, do you have a song to sing at the end of the message? And I said, if you can think of one that's not X-rated, I'll be eager to hear it. I want to look at several passages where Paul um, speaks to this issue. And I guess sex is an embarrassing hot potato issue in most cultures. Um, Even in our incredibly highly sexualized culture, it remains somewhat of a hot potato. It isn't that we find it difficult to speak about. In fact, sometimes it seems to be all we speak about. We seem to be completely obsessed by the subject. But all our talk and all our obsessiveness has not led to health and wholeness. Uh, For all of our so-called liberation, I suspect that rarely, if ever, there has been a generation that is as sexually bound up and broken as ours is. And although we are separated by 2,000 years from ancient Corinth, there are so many parallels between their world and their experience and ours. Generally, the Greco-Roman world of Corinth, um, extramarital sex was widespread and diverse in its expression. The famous Greek statesman Demosthenes portrayed the attitude of the times when he said, at least for men, we have mistresses for our pleasure, we have concubines to care for our daily bodily needs, and we have wives to bear us legitimate children and to be the faithful guardians of our households. So that was their attitude towards sex. And specifically, Corinth was infamous for its laxity with regard sexual standards and norms. I mentioned, I think, in the first message that in Corinth, prostitution was rife. They had the temple of Aphrodite in the city with a thousand plus prostitutes who would come down into the town or the city by night and ply their trade. Homosexuality, including sex between men and boys, was widespread and largely an acceptable form of sexual expression. Into this situation, Paul comes and seeks to establish a countercultural community with a set of values that would stand in stark contrast to the larger Corinthian Greco-Roman culture. And he's facing some significant challenges. As many of the Corinthian believers are still, as I said last week, or a week before, acting out of an old story when it comes to, in this case, their sexual capacities. Their present behavior does not now reflect their new status. So what I want to do this morning is just read to you a couple of passages, maybe three, we'll see how we're going for time. And, uh, and make a few comments on what Paul was speaking to and how that might reflect in, in our postmodern culture. So I want to read, first of all, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, It has been widely reported that there is gross sexual, sexual immorality among you, the kind of immorality that's so revolting, it's not even tolerated by the social norms of unbelievers. Are you proud of the fact that one of your men is having sex with a stepmother? Shouldn't this heartbreaking scandal bring you to your knees in tears? You must remove the offender from among you. Even though I'm physically far away from you, my spirit is present with you, as, and as one who is present with you, I've already evaluated and judged the perpetrator. 
So call a meeting, and when you gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you know my spirit is present with you in the infinite power of our Lord Jesus, release this man over to Satan for the destruction of his rebellious flesh, in hope that his spirit may be rescued and restored in the day of the Lord. Boasting over your tolerance of sin is inappropriate. Don't you understand that even a small compromise with sin permeates the entire fellowship, just as a little leaven permeates the batch of dough? So remove every trace of your leaven of compromise with sin so that you might become new and pure again. Paul had heard from the reports that came back to him that a case of incest was happening in the community. And uh, one of the translations says, one of your men is having sex with his stepmother. Now, often in this culture, when a man married, or in this case, probably remarried, their wives were much, much younger than they were. And this woman is probably of a similar age to one of his grown-up children from a former marriage. And the woman and this grown-up boy, son, man, had become sexually involved. And the thing is, it wasn't some secret trust. It it was clearly known about and, and, and tolerated within the community of faith which at least he was a member of. Um, She may not have been, and I'll talk about this later perhaps, but the discipline that's enacted by Paul relates to the man, not the woman. So we suspect that perhaps she was not a member of the community, though he was. It seems, as far as the community was concerned, that freedom and broad-mindedness was their boast. And Paul says to them, you shouldn't be boasting about your broad-mindedness and your tolerance. You should be mourning as for the dead. That's literally what the Greek means. Because there has been a death in the family. In a spiritual sense, there had been death. And Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians that, listen, this kind of behavior isn't even acceptable among the sexually lax Corinthians. Even they know where to draw the lines. Cicero, a very famous pagan of the time, wrote about a very similar incident, actually, where a stepmother had become involved with her stepson. And in typical fashion for the time, he lambasts the woman, but this is how he describes the situation. The madness of passion broke through and laid low every obstacle. Lust triumphed over modesty, wantonness over scruple, and madness over sense. Even even an unbeliever recognized there's something terribly wrong in this situation. Paul, in dealing with this situation, essentially agrees with Cicero's comments. He says this behavior is abhorrent. The man is doing something that even sexually lax pagans find morally reprehensible. He is not living out of the new status that he has in Christ. Unlike Cicero, he does not blame the woman. He deals, as I said, in discipline with the man. It may be that she wasn't part of the community. But Paul then goes on to scold the community. He says, you have no right to be broad-minded and tolerant about these issues. Scripture is clear on the matter, and now you have been grafted into this story. Scripture is your guide. Paul demands action. He said, there's a need for church discipline. You remove this man from the community. If you don't, the sinful leaven of his life will affect the whole congregation if action is not taken. We might say, if you don't remove the bad apple from the barrel, they'll all turn bad. This is what I was talking about last week. We don't like to think about this, but there are corporate implications once we are included in the body of Christ. For for you and I who have grown up in an intensely private individualistic ethos of the West, Paul's call for corporate accountability and action is somewhat disturbing. 
You know, for, for us postmoderns, our beloved canon within the canon is judge not that you be not judged. And by that we mean you keep your nose out of my business and I'll keep my nose out of yours. But that's not what that passage is saying. That text from Matthew is a warning against hypocritical self-righteousness, but it does not, it must not preclude the church's corporate responsibility for the discipline of those who embrace that community. Those who regularly and brazenly violate the will of God on sexual matters have to be confronted. It's not being narrow-minded. It's not being legalistic. Our broad-minded tolerance have not done us and served us well. The fact that the church in our time so rarely exercises any form of discipline is actually not to our credit. It's a sign, according to Scripture, of our unfaithfulness. While we might justify our behavior in terms of enlightened tolerance, the fact is it's more likely to be an excuse for either indifference or a lack of moral courage. Sexual sin matters, according to Paul. Let me read another passage to you as he goes on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you, know, do, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from all sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whosoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is a difficult passage because of um, the because as you look at it, it's clear that Paul's not necessarily saying all this to them, but he's answering their questions. And some of the things that he talks about are actually their statements to him that he's repeating back. And, and when you're studying um, the original Greek, it, it's hard because there's no, uh, there's no punctuation marks. But most scholars in this particular passage that I've read to you start off by saying, you say all things are lawful. So Paul's not saying all things are lawful for me. He's saying that's what you say. These Corinthians had a wrong view of freedom. Apparently, some of the men were going to prostitutes as they had done before their conversion and they were, asked, they were arguing that their new freedom in Christ allowed it. And Paul takes this approach. He says, yes, you are free, but... There really is freedom in Christ, but there are qualifications and guidelines of that freedom. Paul is not what we call antinomian. He's not in favor of just lawlessness. He writes to the Galatians and he says this, it's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use that freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. That's Paul's idea of freedom. It's not do whatever you like, 
Perhaps Paul would like to say, listen, when one loves God, all things are permissible. Because when one loves God, one does what God loves. That's his idea of freedom. The Corinthians then go on to, to say something else that Paul quotes. You say, he says, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy both of them. Not only did the Corinthians have a bad misunderstanding with regard to freedom, they had a bad and wrong view with regard to their body. If I could paraphrase it, their thinking would go something like this. When I itch, I scratch. When I feel hungry, I eat. When I feel sexual desire, I satisfy that desire by engaging in sex. No big deal. Listen, God has saved our souls. He really isn't interested in the physical things. It's all going to burn. That came from Gnostic teaching. The Greeks thought that the soul and the spirit were really important, but the body was just like a husk that, that ultimately would be blown away. Paul refutes that. Paul says, no, no, no. Man doesn't just have a body. He is a body. You are a psychophysical, spiritual unity. And what you do in one part of your life dramatically affects the other part of your life. The body, your body, is an integral part of the Christian story. And we who live in this story must understand that what we do with our body is a matter of urgent concern because it has eternal implications. That's why Paul goes on to say in this passage, by the power of God, God raised Jesus from the dead and he's gonna raise you also. What he's saying here is the resurrection of Jesus' body assumes the resurrection of the believer's body and the future resurrection of our bodies make a matter of what we do with it of incredible importance. So in verse 15 and 17, he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the, then the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute becomes one with her? It's said the two shall become one. And then he says, when you're united with the Lord, you're one spirit. I want to focus on that for a moment. Paul's whole argument here presupposes that sexual intercourse cannot simply be understood as a momentary act that satisfies a transient natural urge. As the message translation says it, there's more to sex than skin on skin. There's much more involved than simply physical. The Bible teaches that sexual intercourse creates a mysterious but very real and enduring union between a man and a woman. The Bible says they become one flesh. So very countercultural, in spite of what culture says, there is no such thing as casual sex. I'm sorry, not from a biblical point of view. There is no such thing as sex without strings attached. There's a lot more than strings attached. Paul appeals, as Jesus does in Matthew chapter 19, back to God's original intention for, um, for, for sex in Genesis chapter 2.24, where it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The, one, the oneness mentioned here isn't some kind of throwaway comment about the physical closeness of the sex act. It's, a, it's describing a sexual union that is a mysterious union of spirit, soul, and body. I don't know whether you know this, but medical science and psychological studies are proving the Bible to be accurate in surprising ways, particularly regarding that verse. 
It turns out, for example, that in your nose, you have a special organ called the vomeronasal organ that is directly wired to the sexual centers in your brain. And what it does is it picks up our partner's body scent. Without trying to be crass or funny, each person has an odor print that is as characteristic of them as their fingerprint or voice pattern. These scents, called pheromones, have a de definite sexual purpose. And scientists have discovered that when a woman is regularly exposed to her partner's sweat, a pheromone in his sweat causes her menstrual cycle to become more regular. That regularity is believed to make her more fertile and more likely to conceive. At the same time that that's happening, the husband's testosterone levels become synchronized with his wife's monthly cycle, meaning that his sex drive peaks at the time she's most fertile. Clearly and remarkably, their bodies are acting as one flesh. When a man and a woman start having sex, a new level of communication begins at a bodily level. Their, their immune systems begin, as it were, conversing. Gives a whole new insight to biblical language where it says Adam knew his wife Eve. When a husband's seminal fluid is first introduced into his wife's reproductive tract, it initiates a series of changes in her physical immune system. Incredibly, the seminal fluid contains some compounds that temporarily suppress her immune system, allowing time for her body to recognize and accept his sperm instead of making a mistake and assuming it's some kind of foreign infectious bacteria. Remarkable. When a woman becomes pregnant, the child within her obviously contains a mixture of genetic material from both her and her husband. If the immune system has not learned to recognize and accept the father's genetic material, there would be a significant danger that the body would actually react against the embryo, perceiving it to be a foreign body, possibly producing a dangerous condition called eclipsia, high blood pressure, kidney damage, possibly even brain hemorrhaging and death. These bodies synchronize together. Medical research has shown that if a woman were to become pregnant through a brief affair with another man, she and the child conceived by that man face greater health risks because although she's developed synchronicity with her husband, she does not have it with her new partner. Listen, I don't say those things to be silly or just trivial. I'm saying it that, that to, to, to say that at a, at a level far deeper than conscious thought or our ability to control Pheromone and immune systems in our body are sending chemical signals backwards and forwards that regulate and control a one flesh union. What is true at the physical level is also profoundly true at a soulish spiritual level. Sexual involvement with another deeply impacts, sh sh it shapes mind and emotions. As a result, a powerful bond, the richness of which has been mined for centuries by poets and singers, is formed. Within the context of marriage, that emotional bonding is designed to bring strength and resilience to the relationship. Many counselors and psychologists who specialize in helping people with sexual difficulties have observed from working with thousands of clients that a person's first experience of sexual intercourse has a powerful and lasting impact on their sexuality. 
it is believed that the first imprint, the first experience indelibly stamps our brain through a process that they call imprinting. And scientists have noted that among animals that mate for life, a biochemical reaction takes place, a surge of hormones in their brains that is designed to imprint the sight and smell of their mate on the other, the other mate so that they will remain faithful to each other for life. And it, is, it seems that something similar happens with human beings as well. Could this imprinting process be the reason that people can always remember their first experience of sexual intercourse, even promiscuous people? who have had so many sexual partners they can't even recall them all, vividly recalled their first one. I, I realise I'm talking, you know, in a way that perhaps some people would feel a little difficult, a, a little uncomfortable, you know, I didn't expect this at church. It's a hot potato. The Bible, the Bible does not shy away from these things because they impact our lives dramatically. And the Bible speaks to those things. You know what, I had an experience some time ago, I heard the story. Um, a young man and a young woman got together before they were married, were sexually involved um, for a time and then kind of drifted apart. Decades went by, they both went off, married other people, um, had their own children. The woman at a particular point in her life became somewhat dissatisfied with her relationship and as she was thinking about this dissatisfaction, her first partner kept coming to mind again and again and again. Is that, is that simply just that there weren't any other partners? From, what, from the story that I know, that wasn't so, but he was the first partner. And so she decided, she lived in another part of the country, that she would come up to Hamilton and look him up, and she did. And it wasn't long before he left his family, she left his, and they got together again. Now, I know that's anecdotal, but there is something about imprinting. There is something that transpires in sexual intercourse that unites and binds. And what is true of the first instance of sexual intercourse in a special way is meant to be true in a subsequent, perhaps lesser way, lesser way, every time intercourse takes place. It's intended to develop and deepen the emotional bond between husband and wife. I, I suspect that this might explain the incredible damage done to people by molestation, by abuse, by rape. Because what was intended in the purposes of God to be entirely positive and health-producing has the capacity to be incredibly destructive and harmful. You imagine how this one flesh union and bonding that God intends to be so wholesome and powerful can be so destructive in the case of casual sex with multiple partners. Friends, if you get two pieces of timber and laminate them together and then pull them apart. They never pull apart as whole pieces of timber. They tear and splinter. They rip a piece off that and leave a piece on this. And then you imagine the process of laminating again and again and again. The possibility of having something whole at the end of that process is, is it's just impossible. And I, and I know that our society would probably listen to what I'm saying and say, God, he's a blinking dinosaur stuck in a tar pit. Well, you know what? You look around and you tell me, is it working? Is it healthy? STDs have exploded off the scale 
Apparently in 1950 there were five recognisable STDs, now there are over 50, and I understand that something like 30% of them, we don't know how to, how to heal them as, as yet. And the brokenness beyond the physical is astounding. And, and, you know, those of us in pastoral care roles see it all the time. You know what? I have never, ever in 40 years of ministry had someone come to me, sit down in my office, burst into tears and say, Don, one time I shoplifted and I have been haunted by that all of my life. Now, there might be somebody like that, but I haven't met them. You know what, I can't begin to count the number of people who have come into my office over 40 years of ministry, sat down, and after some small talk, got down to the issue of their sexuality and how they deeply, deeply regret incidences and, and activities in their life, many of them sobbing over things that have happened 30 and 40 years ago, both, both to them that they didn't want and with them consensually but how they deeply regret it. I want to tell you the Bible has something to say about this. And as people who have been grafted into a story that is regulated by Scripture, we need to hear it. We need to be a counterculture, stark relief to the culture that says, go out and get a bit. Listen, when you go out and get a bit, you give a bit. And when you've given a bit and got a bit and given a bit and got a bit, you don't even know who you are anymore at that level of your life. And so many people, when they finally do come into a, one, into a marriage relationship, are haunted and taunted by the things that happened to them. It didn't give them experience. It gave them memories that ruin the possibility of sexual health and wholeness at that part of their lives. We're getting down to it, aren't we? Verse 15 says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Paul uses some language here, and he means, shall I tear away that union and join it to something else? It's a very strong word in the Greek. It's the, it's the word that's used in Matthew 9, 16, where it talks about cloth being torn, a, a patch being put on and then torn away. He says, shall I take something from this one flesh relationship and tear it away and join it to another? Will that be healthy? No. You know, in Jude, verse 19, Paul in the King James, the translation says, these be they, he's talking about sensual people, and he says, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the Spirit. Now, in that passage, most people say, these be those who are sensual. They cause divisions in the community, and it's probably a fair way of looking at it, except for the fact that the Greek apparently is in the middle voice, which indicates it's an act done to themselves. They aren't tearing something else. They're tearing themselves. And sensuality does that. It divides and fragments our lives. It tears something, joins it to something else, tears something, joins it to something else, and we wonder why we struggle to be whole. When the Bible says flee sexual immorality, it's not being prudish. It's not, it's not God being a cosmic killjoy. It's God saying that doesn't work. That part of your behavior will not work. It will not work physically, and we see that. It will not work at a soulish, spiritual level. It will be destructive. So we become yoked, joined to those that we become sexually involved with. 
And when that's many, it causes incredible difficulties. And I remember a girl coming to see me many, many years ago. She wasn't part of this congregation, but she was a relatively new Christian. She began talking about uh, a devotional life and, and uh, how, do, how do you pray? So I'm talking to her about prayer, but she looks a little bit uncomfortable. And I said to her, um, so, so tell me what's going on. She said, I just, I just can't pray. And I said, why? And she looked down and she said, well, you know, like when I pray, these, these images come before me. And I said, I, I took a punt. And I said, are they people? She said, yes. I said, are they boyfriends? She said, yes. I said, are they sexually involved boyfriends? She said, yes, and broke down. And she saw herself yoked. She said, I'm chained. The the chains go round my legs off to these men that I were involved with. And in a moment, I saw graphically what the Bible talks about. And I've seen it many times since. It, It... just in case you're sitting there and thinking, oh my God, you know, uh, you know um, I mean, I'm like her, what do I do? If you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you've, heard, you've probably heard people describe this in terms of soul ties. And they need to be broken, and they need to be broken prayerfully, and probably with somebody praying with you and for you. They need to be broken, and you need to be reorientated. Some of you, some of you are saying, Don, the only sexual involvement I had was with one woman. She later became my wife. Is that okay? No, I'm afraid it's not. Because you inverted the order, and inverting the order, you pervert the order. And again, I can't begin to tell you the number of couples that I've talked to over the years who are having difficulties at this part of their life that were traced back to the fact that they became sexually involved before they were married. It's not unforgivable. It's not unredeemable. It's not unfixable. But it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be dealt with because sometimes it stands as the elephant in the room at this dimension of our lives. And God wants us whole. He wants us free. And he's not ashamed to deal with it in the terms that that we're talking about it this morning. He's not embarrassed. It's not a hot potato for him. He wants our lives to be full and and filled with this wholeness. But so often it's our disobedience that's created the the mounds of rubble that we constantly fall over. So if you're sitting there saying, well, Don, can my future ever be restored? Is, Is even my physical health in danger? Can God forgive my failure? God is a redeemer. He takes broken things and he fixes them up. You know, he's made our bodies more adaptive and resilient than we deserve them to be. So that sexual failure doesn't need to be fatal or final, physically or spiritual. But it does require an acknowledgement. It does require that we say sorry. We don't simply trade on his mercy. You know, some people function with, with, with the mantra, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. But, but you've heard me say before many times, the best definition of, of, of sin I've ever heard is the attempt to take by force the very thing that God wants to give you by grace. He wants this part of your life to be healthy and whole and fulfilling. When we seek to take it by force, we do damage. He will forgive you. But sometimes we live with consequences. So Paul's final statement in this passage is, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you and who you've received from God. Now he's, he's working back to who they are. This, this thought moves from indicative to imperative, from something he says about them to some way that they should behave. He does not say to them, keep your bodies holy so that God can give you the Holy Spirit. He says to them, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. And you should be now living like this. He empowers you to live like this. Don't live out of the old story. Keep your body from sexual sin. You're very quiet. Mind you, you're always very quiet, so that might not necessarily say anything. Let me read one other scripture. I'll make a couple of bullet points on it, and then we're done. So Hannah, if you can think of a song that can follow this. We will all be waiting with bated breath, but get ready because I'm about to call you up, okay? The, the, the scripture goes on in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now, getting down to the question you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. My goodness, how relevant is that? The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not the place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. This portion of scripture, by the way, before I give you those bullet points, has probably been tragically misunderstood for most of church history. And it's arisen out of the failure that, from, from the point of failure where it starts off, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And Paul, that, by the way, touch a woman is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And people have thought, Paul said that. Paul's saying, well, it's better not to have sexual intercourse. He's not saying that. He's quoting the Corinthians. They are saying that. There's a group of aesthetics in the midst of them that have decided that in order for holiness and spiritual power, you have to be free of sexual contact. And Paul's saying, no. It's not wrong for sexual intercourse within certain, within certain confines. So it's a, to say that Paul, you know, despised women and only grudgingly permits sex within marriage as some kind of distasteful concession to the lusts of the flesh is a complete caricature of Paul's teaching. This is not what he's saying. Four bullet points to finish. Number one, this isn't Paul's full counsel on marriage. He's simply responding to a specific set of questions that the Corinthians have asked him. So you have to read a little more widely. Secondly, they were suggesting that sexual intimacy, even within marriage, was not the best pathway if one wanted to know holiness and spiritual power. Paul disagrees strongly. Thirdly, there's no trace in this passage or any other, actually, for Paul's contempt of woman. The, the idea that he is a misogynist is, is, again, a tragic caricature of, actually, the things that Paul says in the Scriptures. There's no contempt for woman, nor is there any idea that sexual intimacy within marriage is a concession that is less than God's highest standard. Actually, Paul's teaching demonstrates 
a remarkable vision, absolutely radical in its time, of mutuality between man and woman in the sexual realm. He says to the man, um, your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife. And then he says to the wife, his body is not his own, it belongs to you. Now, to say in that culture that a woman's body was not her own, it belonged to a husband, wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. Everybody understood that. But in that culture, to say, and to the man, your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife, was radically countercultural. And he's saying marriage is a place of mutuality, and you agree that you will serve one another in this realm. In bed and out of bed, he says. I'm stunned sometimes how accurate, how real, how robust the Bible is on all sorts of subjects, including this most sensitive hot potato. And you know, for you and I who have been grafted into the Christian story by his incredible grace, the culture does not determine how we behave. The culture must not set the standards for you and I. It might for your neighbors. It must not for us. When it comes to our sexual attitudes and practices, our decisions are not based on or shaped by personal preference, expediency, or by current cultural standards, but only by the desire to glorify God in our bodies. We are not free to do what we like. We are not free to invent our own standards. We are not free to behave as free moral agents. We are bound to a relationship of obedient faithfulness to Christ. listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.